HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and we are coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, August 2nd, 2017. This is the 150th episode of this series. Hard to believe we've got to 150 here. Woo, thanks for that, David. And yes, this show is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a legendary restaurant critic, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. Today's tip is to have a signature style. What makes you, you? How do you set yourself apart from the rest? What makes you unique and happy? Discover the true you and your own authentic sense of style and live it with a passion as being real is fabulous. That's my tip today. Now I am thrilled to have my guest calling in. It is the insatiable critic, Gail Green. In her role as restaurant critic of New York Magazine from 1968 to 2002, Gail helped change the way New Yorkers and many Americans thought about food. 
Gail also co-founded City Meals on Wheels, along with James Beard, making a significant impact in New York City, rallying Food World peers to make a commitment to help feed the city's homebound elderly. Gail has written many books, including her memoir, Insatiable Tales, Insatiable Tales from a Life of Delicious Excess, and she has received numerous awards, including Humanitarian of the Year by the James Beard Foundation, winner of ISCP's Magazine Writing Award, and a silver spoon from Food Arts Magazine. So welcome, Gail. Well, quite an introduction. Well, wait, I narrowed it down. It was, I could have, I could have gone on for much longer, but you've, you've, you have quite a yeah. career and accomplished well, a lot. Well, definitely a life of uh, good times and, and indulgence. Yes, def- definitely. And so in a longer bio, I did read that you grew up in Michigan, and I believe you went to the University of Michigan. Is that yes. correct? I am a grad myself, so go blue. I did not know that. You went there. <laughs> right, in the prehistoric times. <laughs> no, no. Um, and I worked for the Michigan Daily. Oh, wow. Yes, um, I was, I started, was, Starting when I was a freshman, I began to hang out in the uh, at the daily office and editing, uh, proofreading. I wasn't even on the staff. Nobody knew who I was or what I was doing, but I wanted to be involved, so I proofread. And then ultimately, um, when I was eligible to go on staff, I became a reporter and then a an editor. Oh, so it began back in college. That's that's. Awesome. Well, actually, it began in high school. Okay. Yes, we had a, co- a high school newspaper, and uh, I was a reporter. I decided to do a story on the um, the boy with the green hair. I decided to find out how our high school would react if someone came to to class with green hair. So I dyed my hair green, and they went insane. I got sent home, of course. It was a a wonderful little story, and uh, I guess I just became, uh, it seemed to me this was a lovely way to uh, make a living if I could get a job once I got out of school. Right. So, so what did you do once you graduated? Did you move right to New York and seek Jobs. No, I wasn't in New York. I was in Detroit. Okay. I, I was born, I grew up in Detroit. My family lived in outside of Detroit. And um, I uh, tried, came to, do, to New York every three-day weekend and tried to get a job. And it was very discouraging. No jobs for women uh, at Time, Inc. or the many newspapers that I tried. Uh, finally, I went. I heard that the New York Post would give a one-week tryout to anybody, and that that's how they staffed the paper during summer vacations when their people were taking time off. So I came in, and they said, "Sure, you can come. You can have, you can come for a week. <laughs> you can have a tryout for a week." So and I unfortunately had not worked long enough at that point for UPI in Detroit, so I quit and uh, went to New York for my one-week trial. Wow. And then what, what, what happened after the one week was up? Well, they, they liked my work. I got some front-page stories, 
they asked me to stay for a uh, two-week tryout and then for a month tryout. At the end of the month, they said, okay, now we're going to give you three months. I said, no, I'm not going to take a three-month tryout. If you don't want to hire me now, I'm going to go to Italy because the men are wonderful and um, um, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in Italy. <laughs> I, I, so I love how you think. I, okay. never got, I never got to spend that much time in Italy again. Although I did go often with my husband and occasionally wrote about it for New York Magazine. Which is a great segue into how did you get involved with New York Magazine? And you did not initially start, I don't believe, as the food reporter. So what? how did you get into writing about food and becoming the, the reviewer? Well, I was always um, interested in food and restaurants. I was the brave eater in my family where there were a bunch of little sort of very timid eaters. And uh, my husband and I, Don Forst, the newspaper man, went uh, occasionally. We heard about three-star restaurants. We didn't know anything about it, but we heard there was a, such a thing as a three-star Michelin restaurant, and we headed for um, La Pyramide uh, near Lyon in the town of Vienne. We had the most extraordinary dinner, and when we staggered out of that restaurant, leaning into each other to go back to the residence, I thought to myself, I have to find a way to finance meals like this. It was 45 francs, if you can imagine. I think that's $7 at that time. Okay. 45 francs, and of course, the, uh, we had the, some wine. One wine bottle was a dollar. And then we had a half bottle that was 20. The sommelier almost fainted when somebody ordered a, a expensive wine like that. Um, so that was it. I was looking for places to sell articles so I could finance my uh, passion here. And Don was uh, very much in love with eating out, too. We would um, go, as, whenever we saved enough money, we would go to great restaurants in New York. Our favorite was the Café Chauveron. Uh, you probably I don't haven't heard about it. I mean, uh, who no, well, now I have. But anyway, on my website, <laughs> I have a wonderful piece on uh, the Café Chauveron it, and, um, and about those early days. Actually, writing for New York came much later because New York didn't start until 1968, and we were already addicted. Café Chauveron as Love Object. I published that in nine, September 1969. I'm going to go to your site right after this show is over and read that because <laughs> I'm very curious. Um, and you, uh, so, so we, I was eating around, and I was a cook. I took cooking classes, um, and somehow uh, Clay Felker. Uh, uh, no, I guess I went to Clay Felker to sell him an article on Henri Soulet, the famous uh, chef, little five five foot by five feet wide, five feet high. Uh, the famous owner of Le Pavillon. It was the greatest restaurant in New York at the time. Craig Claiborne was mad about it. Um, Wexman, I'm sorry, I can't think of his first name, had written a whole book about the Pavillon. And um, I decided that I would try to write a story and sell it. So I 
persuaded the Ladies Home Journal, a most unlikely place. But they had a New York section, a special New York section in the back of the magazine to run my, uh, my piece. Whoops, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I sold it to Clay Felker first, I guess. Clay Felker was running a magazine at the Herald Tribune called New York. My husband worked for the Herald Tribune. When the, when the newspaper folded, Clay bought the rights to the name, and two or three years later, after raising, trying to raise the money and finally finding um, a backer, he started New York Magazine in uh, spring of 1968. And after he hired all the important people, Gloria Steinem and... Um, uh, um, uh, Jimmy Breslin and yeah, all the all the name people that gave to Lisa, all the people, the name people that right were and Tom Wolf that were writing uh, incredible pieces at that time. They started in Esquire, where Clay knew them, and he brought a lot of those great writers to New York Magazine. And finally, at uh, the middle of the summer, he began to think about a food writer, and he called. So what was, what was the beginning, like, I mean, being with the magazine for, for, very, for a long time and doing multiple reviews, I mean, it's how, how were your reviews back then different from today, and how did the dining, or if they were different? And, and also, like, what were big changes in the dining scene that you you saw, I mean, I mean, this this question we probably could answer the whole show because um, you probably saw so many changes. But what were, I mean, what were your initial, you know, takes on restaurants and how did it change over the years? Well, in the beginning, there was not a lot of excitement and or originality in um, the restaurants of New York. There were some old classics and a lot of typical steakhouses. The greatest restaurants in New York were considered to be the great French restaurants because Craig Claiborne adored all the French restaurants. And um, the, uh, there were, on the Upper East Side, there were a lot of uh, Eastern European restaurants, uh, Czechoslovakian and uh, Turk, Tur uh, Hungarian, mm -hmm. and, and little inexpensive places, wonderful little restaurants like that. But... What happened um, eventually was that in the late 70s, three restaurants opened that were run by a young, by young American couples who were not trained. And they were the Quilted Giraffe by Barry and Susan Wine, Chanterelle by um, you-know-who. Right. And... Uh, the uh, Dodin Buffon by a couple who had had a restaurant in Boston, the Pritzkers, Bobby and Karen Pritzker. And they were, all three of them, fabulous and different. They didn't use the crummy French rolls that the great French restaurants used because they had to buy something French. <laughs> they used real bread that they got in Hoboken. And um, all three of them actually tried to be French because that was the thing at that time, yeah. was to be a great French restaurant. Um, and it just changed the way we thought about food. It got uh, many people 
uh, interested and excited about food. It suggested that it was a good thing to be a chef, and it was okay to. It wasn't exactly a blue collar job. It was, you know, it was, if your son said he was going to the Culinary Institute, you didn't commit suicide. <laughs> it was almost as good as if he was going to Harvard. Right. Uh, so that was the beginning of people's awareness, and it began to build. And New York Magazine had a crucial role in making people aware of what fun, what theater eating in New York restaurants could be. Yes. I'm thinking, well, that was the change. Yeah, that was David Waltuck. I just came to me. Um, right, David and Karen Waltuck. Um, so... When when you were reviewing, did you did you always try to be anonymous? Um, did you? Oh yes, yes, okay. yes. When Clay Felker offered me the job, I first I said no. I couldn't afford to write for New York Magazine. They were paying nothing compared to the incredible fees I was getting from Cosmopolitan and Ladies Home Journal. Um, but I said then when finally he said how people were fighting to become the New York Magazine restaurant critics so they could charge all their meals to the magazine. I thought, oh, my God, what a concept. Okay, I accepted. I, but I made him promise that we would have all the same rules as Craig Claiborne, a minimum of three visits, uh, that we would always pay um, the bill, mm-hmm. and, that I would, and that we would be anonymous. Um, and he agreed. Whatever, whatever he said, you know. Of course. How, how difficult <laughs> so that was it? And for quite a while, I didn't reveal in any of my reviews that I was a woman, because ah, there was quite a prejudice different uh, against women. Craig, being a male critic, was obviously you know the godfather and so important, um, and you know set a tone. Um, so I was trying not to, to, to even be anonymous in that way. And it was only uh, in 1974 when my darling husband and I decided we couldn't stay together any longer um, that I thought, gee, here's a chance to advertise. So- <laughs> <laughs> so I did, I I did an article about a French restaurant where I imagined that I saw all kinds of wonderful, illicit couples having di- uh, dinner, at lunch and dinner, and um, I revealed that I was a woman and hoped for the best. Oh. Was, there, was there a big reaction from it when people found at out you were point, a woman? No, at that point, okay. New York Magazine was so important and so influential mm-hmm. And people were uh, very excited about this new form of reviewing restaurants. That it that it was you know it was too I couldn't be destroyed at that point. Right. They were already um, very. I had a, a huge following. Clay Felker used to come back from lunch and tell me what people were saying about my reviews. It was he was really thrilled. He loved writers and he loved writing. Were you ever, or have you ever been concerned about writing negative reviews, or, you know, I don't know, does that well, does that come yes. in mind when uh, you're putting I together a story? Was, you know, I was concerned that I could close a restaurant, and um, when I went to a little place that was not very good, it didn't seem to me there was any point in smashing it with a hammer, because it would disappear on its own, because it wasn't very good. 
but whenever a very uh, big, popular, or or hot kind mm-hmm. of a restaurant was the food was terrible or the service was outrageous, or the attitude was worth um, um, revealing. I I felt that I must and I should and and that's it. So I finally got the courage to you know to to be be very negative and occasionally was but my goal has always been and it still is I'm still reviewing restaurants on my website insatiablecritic.com and my I my goal is to find a restaurant that is really worth recommending so again and again the restaurants I I don't want to waste a week review on two or three restaurants that aren't so good or that even are a bad if they're not you know not really important i want to tell you someplace that's worth going worth saving your money um and that's that's still what i'm doing now yes and i love that and on that note we're going to take a little break and then we're going to talk more with gail so stay with us this is all in the industry on heritage radio network following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Gail Green of Insatiable Critic, and she is the former restaurant critic at New York Magazine. I assume all my listeners know who you are, and I'm just I'm I'm so honored to have you on my show today. I just have to have to say that. Um, another thing that that you have have spent a lot of time on and is is very admirable is your work with City Meals on Wheels, which you co-founded with James Beard. So how did that come about? I saw it started in 1981. Yes. Um, there was an article in the New York Times. It was a Sunday. I was uh, having breakfast in bed, and I read City Scrimps to Feed the Aged. It was all about how uh, the, gov- the government funds would only cover a delivery of a lunch five days a week to New York City's homebound elderly, and that there was nothing at all on the weekends or on holidays, and there were maybe 14 city holidays uh, in which people might not get a meal for three days. Uh, And I thought, this is outrageous. I called James Beard, and he had read the same article, 
And he's, I said, you know, Jim, let's fill some Christmas baskets. And he said, well, what about weekend meals? I said, oh, we'll do that, too. You know, we were so naive, we had no idea. Uh, so over the um, weekend, he called Barbara Kafka and uh, various other people in the food world, restaurateurs, publicity people, um, people, uh, food, uh, food uh, let's say, what's, uh, the Food Society members. We both got on the phone, and over the weekend we raised $35,000. On Monday, I looked in the article for where to call, and there was something called Meals on, Meals on Wheels. I dialed, and their number was busy. Impatiently, I looked in the article again, and I found New York City Department for the Aging. So I called them, and I said, we have $35,000 and some cooking good chickens. My boyfriend at the time did advertising for the chicken company. I said, we, <laughs> we want all this money to go just for meals because there had been a scandal recently about money being raised at a cancer benefit in which the benefit cost more than the money they raised. And, they, and the commissioner who was put on the phone um, by the woman who answered, who was a schoolmate of mine at the Michigan Daily, <laughs> said, of course, we have our administrative funds, and we don't have to. I said, you can't spend a dime for a stamp or phone call. Every penny must go just for meals. You have to promise. She said, I promise. There's no problem. We have administrative funds. So that uh, weekend, they, deli- they did a Christmas meal for 6,000 people. Wow. It's incredible. And uh, we were so moved by what we had done that we decided to organize and continue. And, of course, they, they were a little nonplussed. They couldn't even cash our checks. They didn't have the capacity in a city office to cash a private check. Um, but they had someone working there called Marcia Stein, and she took the checks to one of the centers, and they gave her the money, and she told the mayor, Koch, she said, Mayor Koch, I want you to know what's happening, and, uh, because it's, this isn't even legal. And he said, take their money. <laughs> <laughs> so they took our money, and we organized, and the, had a friends board, and we did events. And the first event, I think, raised $50,000. Today, we have a couple events where we raise almost a million dollars, and our total is $19 million a year to feed um, I think we have 18,500 homebound elderly now, and we are bringing them meals seven days a week. Uh, sometimes there's a double-up meal delivered on Friday or Saturday. Or, and uh, holidays, they get, some holidays they get meals delivered. Other holidays they get boxes of, me, of meals equivalent to a, to a weekend of meals. Or in the winter we send emergency backpack packages of the equivalent of 10 meals that they can have food in the house in case there's a storm and their delivery person can't get through. It's um, amazing. And, and I, I know you have you have very notable chefs involved, like Danielle Ballou, uh, going door to door. And also your annual events that I'm familiar with. I know you have the the chef's tribute at Rockefeller Center and a power lunch you do. And it's just, it just, as it's developed and grown over the years and such incredible Yeah, um, well, we work. started with chefs on our board. 
mm-hmm. uh, Charlie Palmer and uh, Drew Nieporant was are on our board, and um, David Rockwell is on our board. Other, you know, the right. food world people. Many of those people on our board brought us uh, other chefs. When Danielle came, Danielle has been actually working for City Meals almost since the beginning, since he came to New York, doing events, um, closing the restaurant to do a party, um, giving a table for our corporate dine-out. And um, he was elected to to be the co-president of City Meals on Wheels with um, Bob Grimes. And he's created something called the Chef's Culinary Council, uh, they get together to produce um, events about food and and sustainable fish and mm-hmm. other subjects of interest to uh, food world people. And he has uh, also in, in interested dozens and dozens of chefs in doing a meal, maybe 200 lunches, which are delivered to a particular neighborhood near the restaurant or in Brooklyn or in, or, uh, in Harlem, depending on where the uh, restaurant, where the uh, particular group of people is or where the chef is located. And the chef goes out then with 10 or 12 meals, 20 meals, and delivers in person and meets the people that we're feeding. And when they actually come to meet these people, it is so touching and so moving to see how grateful they are and the way they live and how much it means. Or maybe some of them just to have a person in their home. You know, well, I used to be a cook, someone will say, uh, or, I, you know, I was an artist. I, I did PR. I never thought I would need them, that I would be unable to go down the steps. Yeah, no, it's 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 so, uh, really wonderful. Has been really, an inspiring for many other chefs. It's been a very uh, creative president of City Meals. But we've just grown and grown, and the volunteers have grown. We have many volunteers who deliver only deliver on the weekends. Every single weekend, they come with their children, and they deliver. Children go too. It's um, and we have a young professional group, which is very active. Uh, we consider they're going to be our board members any minute. Yes, uh, shout out to Lauren Bloomberg. I know she, a friend of mine, and I know she she's uh, your friend too, and leads works on that. So, yes, yeah, she and her husband have both been very active. Yeah, no, uh, and um, of course, Restaurant Associates uh, has been doing that event in Rockefeller Center Garden for thirty one or two years. And Nick Valenti, uh, every year it becomes more expensive to close the restaurants and donate that space and time. Um, And his daughter has been very active also on the young professionals. So it's it's exciting to see. And, you know, the reason that New Yorkers, I think, responded was the idea that it was doable you know, mm-hmm. we were not going to create pie in the sky or, or cure a disease. We were just going to deliver a lunch to somebody on your block, invisible, because they don't get out anymore. Right. And um, yeah. the fact that every dollar you give goes only for meals um, has also been very, as I told the commissioner, not a dime for a stamp or 
a phone call. Uh, we raise our administrative funds separately, and every dollar you, the public, gives, or every ticket you buy, that money goes only for uh, create, uh, creating and delivering the meals. Yeah, no, and much credit to you for for finding founding the organization and staying with it all these years. It's it's really it's really quite uh, impressive and inspiring, and. Um, well, nobody can say I'm not obsessive. <laughs> no, they can't. Um, okay, we need to take another break. But before we do, uh, I, I want to ask you my question from my last guest. So on episode 149, I had on Evan Sung. He's a prominent food, lifestyle, and travel photographer. His work is amazing. So his question is, You've seen a lot of changes in the restaurant world, and sometimes it's easy to think about the good old days and how things might have been better before, such as noise level and comfort. But there are things that you see in restaurants these days. um, But are there things in restaurants that you see these days that you applaud, such as new developments that you think are really great compared to the past? Uh, Well, I think that the continuing creativity of chefs um, and the, com- the different complexity of some restaurants, the return to simplicity at times, mm-hmm. um, and then the continued um, generosity to the community. Restaurants, uh, owners and chefs seem to me particularly to be extremely community-spirited. Uh, all of that is, I consider, to be wonderful developments. Yeah, I like that answer a lot. And on that note, we're going to take another break, and then we're going to come back and play my speed round game and talk some industry news. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. host of A Taste of the Past here on Heritage Radio Network. Using food as a lens to observe history and culture, I take you on a weekly journey through different topics of culinary history. Tune in on Thursdays at noon to hear about the history of such topics as American cake, the accidental churning of butter, pho, the Vietnamese soup craze, and so much more. And help us keep this and other heritage programming alive. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate and continue enjoying great programs. And we're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is insatiable critic Gail Green. It's time for my speed round game. So, Gail, what this is, is I'm going to name a few things, giving you a choice, and you pick your preference. Are you ready? Pick my preference. Such, okay. as, such as chocolate or vanilla. That's an example. Chocolate. Okay. That was a test. <laughs> Good job. All right. Now, here... Um, and I'm chocolate too. Okay, so here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat out. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? 
Say that again. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Well, uh, red wine. Red. Wine is red. Okay. <laughs> How about tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. I'm tired of tasting menus at the moment. Yeah. Okay. How about small plates or large plates? It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, I would love to share with everyone at the table and have more plates. <laughs> I love it. Communal table or chef's counter? I like chef's counter a lot because it's fun to watch them work. Yeah, I agree. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? A tipping. It gives you a chance to be generous, and when you're occasionally angry, you can show it. <laughs> okay. How about vintage handbags or hats? Well, I would certainly love a, a, a really a $2,000 handbag. That's never been my style. But I, I have a collection of antique evening bags <laughs> that I have been selling on Etsy. So that was my, uh, my madness. Well, I see. I follow you on Twitter, and I see you consistently post post about selling these these bags. I'm thinking you have a lot of bags. <laughs> right. I had no idea how many I had till I started selling them on Etsy, and then I started opening more drawers and more drawers and adding on. But I think it, I don't know actually if it would really be that wonderful to have a um, Gucci bag or uh, what are these the two Jane what's her name bag. Um, the, the, because they're very, they're very militant looking. They're giant and they're yeah. heavy, and um, I think they're too heavy for most women to carry. Um, right. I, I like a clutch bag actually yeah. that goes under your arm, and and um, and I love having more and more and more. So if they're not too expensive, that's wonderful too. Oh, hats. Yeah. Well, yes. Well, I don't wear hats in restaurants because if I did, people would might think they were it was me. But I did love having hats for bad hair days when I was growing up and when I was first in New York before I became a restaurant critic. And, of course, oh. I have a collection of hats that I wear to hide my face when photographers are taking pictures. Over the years as a critic, I felt it wasn't right to expose your... Um, yeah. face and to be anonymous as long as possible was my goal. Yeah, well, you're, I mean, you're known for, you're, I think you're known for both. You're known for your bags and your and your hats. Um, it's well, a, nobody it's a style. has ever recognized me by a bag. <laughs> no, but now I, on, on, online maybe, but yeah, the hat is definitely a signature style of yours. So, right. okay, here's here, here are a few more. How about Fried peanut butter and banana sandwich, love it or hate it? <laughs> well, how do you know that that would be my thing? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I read your book. <laughs> oh, right. I just tweeted that. I, I was reading about butter on a, on a uh, bun in the New York uh, food section today. Oh. Something I've never eaten in my entire life. But I do love peanut butter, bacon, and banana on a toasted half of a bagel that yeah. would be a great treat yeah and i was i was thinking of the the elvis story or stories that maybe you have so i know it's known as being his favorite um so okay two more well, you want to say that 
I'm, that Elvis, who featured briefly in my life in a flamboyant way, was also a great lover of peanut butter. And if you want to know the story, you can get Insatiable, Tales from a Life of Delicious Excess, and find out how it happened that I was the only woman in the hotel room when Elvis came in between shows in Detroit, Michigan. Yes, people go go buy That's the book. Lucky, I guess. <laughs> Very lucky. Okay, two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Cheesecake or dessert? Che- cheese cheese plate. Oh, cheese plate or dessert? Um, well, I don't know. I think I would I would certainly love a cheese plate, but I don't want to give up dessert. Okay, so, uh, you can have usually both. Usually, the people at the table, if I say let's have one dessert, they want a dessert. So, <laughs> Last, um, okay. A great cheese plate is actually a wonderful lunch or dinner. Yes. Last one. Well, yeah. Okay. Last one. Manhattan or Brooklyn? Well, I hardly know Brooklyn. Manhattan is my place, and uh, anytime anyone has a car and wants to drive to Brooklyn, I'm usually game. But most of the time, I'm not going to spend an hour in a round trip. And I'm much, you're much more likely to find me in some wonderful new Manhattan restaurant. Great. Well, you're excellent at the game. I loved your answer. So um, thank you. Now we're going to talk a little industry news. Uh, I just picked out the New York Times review today. Uh, Pete Wells reviewed this restaurant in Flushing, Queens. Uh, he gave it three stars. And it was the article is titled, A New Kind of Sichuan Restaurant in New York. And this place is called Guan Fu Sichuan. I never heard of it until I read this review. Um, I think it's, it's it, I mean, it sounds amazing. I, I don't know how he discovered it. Uh, Gail, do you, have you heard of this place? Do you have any interest in going? Or Well, this well, is yes, way out. I would uh, like to go tonight. Okay. Quickly, before it's impossible to get a table. Uh, three stars seems a little rash. But um, if he says so, I think it would be, it, it could be astonishing to have, that, to have that experience. We go to Flushing once in a while mm-hmm. and uh, try out new places. So, uh, but I never heard of that one. And um, good for Pete Wells for finding it. Yeah. So do you, do you tend to go, do you, I mean, do you, do, is what other reviewers, the places they're reviewing, does it influence at all where you're going? Um, or is it, you know, separate? Well, in this case, he would. He, okay. He um, very rarely reviews anything that I haven't already been. I know. You're very quick. Um, so I, I, if he really loves something, I'd certainly trust him. And occasionally we love the same thing. So okay. that's a proof of something. And I guess it's a proof that there is uh, some, there is a, a, a a quality of of uh, taste that people who are good tasters share. Yes, I agree. Um, and the other article, I just had something I found on NPR entitled Sharks Meat Chefs, Discovery to Buy Scripts, Acquiring Food Network and HDTV. 
to bite, if I said that right. So this is about how Discovery Communications, which owns Discovery Channel, Oprah Winfrey Network, and Animal Planet, is acquiring Scripps Networks Interactive, which is the Food Network, Cooking Channel, HGTV, and Travel Channel. Um, And so the two companies... Uh, they're going to command nearly 20% of ad-supported pay TV viewership in the U.S., and the deal was $14.6 billion, and it said it was going to, that Scripps was in debt of $2.7 billion, so it's going to help with that and reduce costs. Well, interestingly, I'm having dinner tonight with a executive from Scripps, and I was going to talk and find out more about this. All right. Um, I would love it if they would celebrate by giving a big donation to City Meals, because after all, a lot of what they do is about food. Um, and uh, I don't know. Four, did you say fourteen million or fourteen billion? Fourteen billion. I might have said it billion. wrong. Yeah, that is hard to think about. Wrap yourself around, isn't it? Yeah, that's. A lot. <laughs> you, can buy, you can still buy an ice cream for only $20. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's a big it's a big merger. And so, yeah, you find out more of the scoop at your yes, dinner. I'm that, going to find out what that's all about. In Queens, perhaps. Apparently, um, you know, joining and, and um, taking over is happening a lot in the, um, in the medical business, in the pharmacy business. It um, you you buy some small company's genius and make it your own and mm-hmm. profit from it, and um, sometimes it's scary because you feel there will be less competition. But uh, so I don't know what this is. I'm going to def- definitely ask. Okay, I- you ask and let us know. And on that note, we're going to take one more break. I'm going to come back and do my solo dining experience and have Gail give, give us the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. This week, it's at Sushi Ishikawa. Here's the rundown. The location, 419 East 74th Street, Upper East Side, New York City. The concept, innovative omakase serving top-quality sushi with genuine warmth and hospitality. The chef, Don Pham, formerly of Oya, Geisha, and Geisha Table. So why did I go? because I love sushi, and I love Chef Don's sushi, and he is a client, full disclosure. And I believe in my 150 episodes is the first time I'm, I'm doing the solo dining at my client, but for good reason, because it's a really special place. So here's my experience. I arrived for a 6 p.m. seating, and it was warm, I was warmly greeted by the team. 
I was seated near Chef Don at the sushi counter, and the omakase progression began. I savored every bite with delight as I watched Chef Don work at his fast pace and with his fun personality. He moves so quickly with perfection, it's actually hard to keep up with him just taking photos. I don't know how he does it. So what did I get? I opted for the 15-course omakase, which is $125. They also have a 12-course omakase for $85. Now, the omakase I had included pieces and composed dishes such as pen shell scallop, smoked Tasmanian ocean trout, a duo of Russian and Santa Barbara uni topped with black truffles, another duo of ebi, which is shrimp and white baby shrimp with bortaga, and toro with caviar and gold leaves. Plus, it was a mid-course of Shawan Mushi, a fabulous hand roll to end, and refreshing melon for dessert, and I had hot green tea. My take. Inventive, beautifully presented, mouth-watering sushi like no other omakase. Chef Don is a true master, in my opinion. The ambiance. Intimate, refined, yet modest setting with an 11-seat sushi counter and 12 table seats. It's perfect for sushi lovers and also uni lovers because he serves a lot of uni. And anyone looking for a one-of-a-kind experience at a good value. Interesting tidbit. So Sushi Ishikawa is Chef Don's first restaurant as owner, and he named it after his dear friend and fellow sushi chef. Chef Don is Vietnamese, and he uses some native ingredients to make house-made sauces, such as Kampachi Viet. And my guest today, Gail Green, wrote a stellar review on her experience at Sushi Ishikawa, and you can check it out on her website, Insatiable Credit. And she has a photo there of a woman who was licking a bowl of uni trio with Ocestra caviar and talked about it because it was so good. This this woman was 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 not going to miss a, 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 a any any part of it. So personal fun fact, I had met Chef Don several years ago when I did the opening PR for Geisha Table, which is part of Serafina Restaurant Group, and that was an intimate Japanese izakaya and sushi restaurant on the Upper East, uh, on the upper West Side, and he was the chef there. So the cost of the meal is $125, not including tax or gratuity. I was comped as a guest, but I, as I say next, would I go back? Yes, and I would be happy to pay for it anytime. The website is, sushi, is ishikawanyc.com. So, um, Gail, yeah, I know, I know you, you had a nice experience there as well. <laughs> well, I hope that when people are looking up my Ishikawa experience, they'll discover that I have on my website also a huge collection of vintage articles from New York Magazine. If you're wanting to know about what it was like and the snob restaurants in 1970, or the Four Seasons, uh, when I, for the first time I wrote about it, um, all those, there have been more than a couple of hundred vintage articles uh, on Gems. my website. Yeah, no, there's a really lot in fun. your website. I, I love reading those old pieces myself. Wondering, oh, how was I so funny then? <laughs> oh, you're 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 such an amazing writer. I don't know how you week after week pull these stories together and and all the details. And you're just you're exquisite. Your writing, and I don't. Oh. I think from then to now, it, nothing's changed. <laughs> so oh, thank you. You're welcome. Um, so it's time for the final question. So next week, my guest is Jason Wright. He is the founder of J. Wright Design, which is a New York-based graphic and web design studio for industries including restaurants and hospitality. So some of Jason's clients are Morimoto, and he works with John Frazier at Nix and Dovetail, and he also works with uh, the Culinary Institute of America. 
So, Gail, what would you like to ask Jason? Well, I'd like to know if he can enjoy food and where he would go in a place that he that is shabby looking and not fabulous and he had nothing to do with. What would that place be? Great. I will ask. So I like that question. And uh, on that note, that's the end of the show. So thank you so much for joining me and and congratulations on your your amazing career. It's it's really inspiring and and just um, very impressive. Well, thank you, and thank you for letting everyone know more about City Meals and that I'm still alive and and, <laughs> and eating. You're <laughs> eating definitely and loving it. You're <laughs> Had definitely some great discoveries in the last month, and they're all on my website. Yeah, and I, I noted it a little before, but you are very quick with new restaurants. I think you're, you're, you're you know, you get your views out, but you beat you beat everyone else time well, and time I again. Well, I try to do uh, if uh, occasionally I, when I do a review, it, it's at least two or three visits. But uh, many of my articles are first impressions um, because I'm so excited about a new place that I want others to know and go there and and uh, keep it alive. Yes. Well, that's wonderful. So thank you again for joining me today. I will let people know um, how to find you. So my guest today has been Gail Green, the insatiable critic and former restaurant critic at New York Magazine. Gail is also the co-founder of City Meals on Wheels with James Beard. Her website is insatiable-critic.com. Her Twitter is at Gail Green. That's G-A-E-L-G-R-E-E-N-E. And Instagram, Insatiable Critic. You can find me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. And all of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org and on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks again to my guest, Gail, and today to my show's engineer, David. I'm Sherry Bayer. Happy 150 episodes. And thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.